welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars and today is Saturday, April 16th, 2022. Wishing one and all, sorry, I dropped my earphones. Wishing one and all a happy Ramadan, a happy Passover, and a happy Easter. Episode 53 is going to explore the relationships between Passover and Easter from a decidedly Christian point of view or from the point of view of someone who studies and researches what these two holidays represent and how they might be connected. Further, we're going to also examine the Passover as a foreshadowing of not only Easter, um for the follower of Jesus, but also of his second coming. So I'm just going to, um, you know, give you my, my, uh, preamble right now. I don't mean to diminish any one religion or an important festival or an important holiday. I'm not, I'm not doing that at all. I'm just talking about how somebody who believes that Jesus was the Messiah, how they connect Passover to Easter and further, how to connect Passover to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm just talking about that point of view without putting any other point of view down or diminishing it. Um, I, I just want to make that clear. It's just from a certain point of view. So, let's begin. So, we're going to um, begin chronologically by asking the question, what is Passover? So, Passover begins, or began, on the 15th day of, I believe it's pronounced Nisan. It's a Jewish, ancient Hebrew month, um, which is the equivalent to what we now know as April. Passover is the first of the three major festivals with both historical and agricultural significance. The other two are Shavat and Sukkot, and please um, excuse my pronunciations of these Hebrew words. Agriculturally, uh, Passover represented the beginning of the harvest season in, in Israel. The primary observances of Passover are related to the Hebrew exodus of from Egypt after 400 years of slavery as told in the biblical book of Exodus. Passover lasts for seven days or eight days outside of Israel. The first and last days of the holiday, or the first two and last two outside of Israel, are days on which no work is permitted for the observant Jew. Work is permitted on the intermediate days, referred to as Halha Moed. The name Passover is derived from the Hebrew word Pesach, which is based on the root Passover and refers to the fact that God's angel of death passed over the houses of the Jews when he was slaying the firstborn of Egypt during the last of the ten plagues. So if you ever watched that movie Ten Commandments, um, when Moses was fighting with the Pharaoh, you probably remember that scene. Passover is also widely, widely referred to as Hag Aviv 
for the fruits the spring festival I'm going to take my little water break already <clears throat> so the Hag -e Aviv spring festival Hag -e Matzoth the festival of matzahs and Ziman Herutenu the time of our freedom Many of the Passover observances still held today were instituted in the Exodus story in the Torah or um, the Old Testament. Probably the most significant observance involves the removal of hametz or leavened bread from homes and property. So there was, um, if you will, they were fasting or they gave something up, which was hametz. Hametz included anything made from the five major grains, wheat, rye, barley, oats, and spelt, that had not been completely cooked within 18 minutes after coming into contact with water. Ashkenazi Jews also considered rice, corn, peanuts, and legumes as hametz. The giving up of hametz commemorates the fact that the Jews left Egypt in a hurry and did not have time to let their bread rise. It is also a symbolic way of removing the puffiness from our souls, meaning the arrogance, the pride, extravagance, how we can be extra. You get rid of all of that within your own soul. In fact, Jews are not only prohibited from eating hamets during Passover, but they may not own or derive any sort of benefit from it either. Even if they're bakers and that's how they make their living and even if they feed pets hamets. This important stipulation requires Jews to sell all remaining leavened products before Passover begins, including utensils used in cooking hamets. Now, this, of course, happens only in the most observant of households. Personally, most Jews that I know today are Reformed and actually may not even have any idea what strict Jews do for Passover. I have found that a lot with my Jewish friends. I ask them about a certain ritual or a certain holiday, and they're like, I don't know. I have a Christmas tree. So, you know, most of my friends, I, I suppose, are Reformed. I do have more observant friends but um, probably not to this extent although I do I am aware of people who do this anyway the grain product eaten during Passover in place of hamets is called matzah matzah is unleavened bread made simply from flour and water and it's cooked very quickly so you probably have seen the Manischewitz matzah um, uh, you can home make it too. This is traditionally viewed as the bread that the Jews made for their flight from Egypt. Matzah is also referred to as lechem oni or the bread of affliction. The content of the Seder or the word for the ritual Passover feast is summed up in 14 parts. You have the Kadesh, which means sanctification. The Yurahats, Yurahats, washing, carpus, the vegetable course, Yakats, breaking, 
Majid, the story, Raksa, washing again, Matsi Matsa, blessings, Meror, or the partaking of bitter herbs, Korek, partaking of a sandwich that's made from the matzah and the bitter herbs, Solkan Orek, the dinner, Zafun, the dessert, Barek, the grace, and Halel, the song, and finally, a very short closing called the Nertzah. So those are the 14 steps of the Passover Seder. So um, I want to examine a few of those steps in context of what we're talking about, um, which is why Christians see the Passover as a foretelling of the life, death, resurrection, and the second coming of Christ. So step number one, let's take a closer look at that. That's the Kaddish, the sanctification. The word Kaddish is derived from the Hebrew root. Boy, I'm going to probably slaughter this like a Passover lamb. But um, the root is Ku'uf Dalet Shin, which means holy. This is a blessing over wine in honor of the holiday. The wine is drunk and then a second cup is poured. Skip to step number three, the carpus, the vegetable course. A vegetable, usually parsley, is dipped into salt water and eaten. The vegetable symbolizes the lowly origins of the Jewish people. The salt water symbolizes the tears shed as a result of their slavery. Parsley is a good vegetable to use for this purpose because when you shake off the salt water, the droplets look like tears. Step four, yakats, or the breaking of the matzah. One of the three matzahs on the table is broken. Part is returned to the pile. The other part is set aside for the afikomen, which we'll talk about in a second. Step seven, matzi matzah, blessings over grain products and eating of matzah. The high matzi blessing, a generic blessing for bread or grain products used as a meal is recited over the matzah. A blessing specific to matzah is recited and a bit of matzah is eaten. Skipping to step 11, which is the zefun or the afikomen. The piece of matzah set aside earlier is eaten as dessert, the last food of the meal. Different families have different traditions relating to the afikomen. Some have the children hide it while the parents have have to either find it or ransom it back. Others, other uh, traditions have parents hiding it. The idea behind this hide, hide and seek game, if you will, is um, to keep children awake and attentive throughout the pre-meal proceedings um, while they're waiting for the main course. It is important to note that this piece of matzah the part set aside and con consumed toward the end of this part of the Seder represented the Passover lamb. Skipping to 
Step 12, the barak, the grace after meals. The third cup of wine is poured and grace after meals is recited. This is similar to the grace that would be said on any other Sabbath. At the end, a blessing is said over the third cup and it is drunk. Now, for the Passover, a fourth cup is poured, including a cup set aside for the prophet Elijah, who is supposed to herald the Messiah and is supposed to come on Passover to do this heralding. The front door of the home is opened at this point, supposedly for Elijah, but tragically and historically, because Jews were accused of putting the blood of Christian babies in the matzah, also known as the blood libel. And these Jews wanted to show their Christian neighbors that they weren't doing anything unseemly. And then the final step, the nertza, um, was a simple statement that the Seder had been completed um, with a wish that next year we may celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, or in other words, that the Messiah would come within the next year. Now, while Christians look forward to the second coming of Christ, Jews look for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I personally see more similarities here than differences, um, but this simple completion statement is followed by various hymns and stories. <sighs> it's pretty dry in my, um, my studio this morning. Anyway, every Passover, the Haggadah, or the guidebook to Passover meals, instructs its audience from every generation to view themselves as though they were personally rescued from Egypt in reference to the verse, quote, you are to tell your son on that day saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, close quote. The real power of the story of Passover is found not in a history lesson, but in a heartfelt recognition that it is because of God's provision that each one of us lives as a free man or woman and not as a slave. Passover marks the season of new beginnings. It is specifically during this time of year that we transition from the dormancy of winter into the new life of spring. Flowers come into bloom and the sound of jubilant songbirds begin to announce the beauty of renewal within God's creation. Passover also reminds us that even in the midst of darkness, hopelessness, slavery, and spiritual bondage, the latent power of the Spirit of the Lord is still present in our lives, preparing to bring a new birth and order out of the chaos, confusion, and despair that so often disfigures um, humanity's joy and stifles, um, where we might feel grateful it stifles our praise because we're suffering so much. And isn't that true? Isn't it possible to be grateful and despairing at the same time? 
And um, Passover tries to dispel that despair part. Passover is God's de declaration that on the other side of slavery is freedom. And on the other side of death is resurrection. And not only freedom and resurrection, but our freedom and our resurrection. That's the promise that's made in these uh, scriptures. So now... Let's discuss the mission of Jesus and how Passover ties in with everything he did, does, or will do, according to not only scripture, but also ancient Hebrew uh, customs. Um, anyway, the, the written accounts of Jesus's life, known as the Gospels of the New Testament, record that the events of the last week of his life, which all took place, in connection with the Passover. He came to Jerusalem just before the Passover week in response to the command in the Torah to appear at the temple in Jerusalem for the feast. This is very important. Um, Jews at the time would understand why he was coming into Jerusalem. Um, not only was it he under obligation to appear in the temple um, for the feast, as men of that age were. But there was a census happening at the same time, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So anyway, Jesus celebrated Passover with his closest associates. That particular feast um, is now what we know as the Last Supper. It was, it was a Passover Seder. Now, some people will say that last dinner that he had with his disciples was not a Seder. It was a Seder. He was a very observant Jew. He had um, something to add, to say the least, but he was called rabbi, and you're not called rabbi unless you are respected by your community. So he was celebrating Passover, again, with his closest associates, his apostles, disciples, family, um, people like this, people he would normally be celebrating Passover with. Now, <clears throat> this Last Supper, it was here that we see Jesus celebrating, um, like I said, a typical Passover, except he knew this one was different. In fact, in the traditional Majid, the question is asked, why is this night different from all others? Jesus answers that question as he breaks, blesses, and shares the matzah, which is a traditional thing to do, <clears throat> and as he pours, blesses, and shares the wine, another tradition. He tells his disciples that his body is the bread of life and that his blood is is the atoning blood that will save the world from death and that he himself is the Passover lamb. This is what was new. During this ritual, he informs his disciples that one of them is about to betray him. When John asks, is it I? Jesus tells him that the guy who dips into the sop after he does is the betrayer. And that dipping ritual is also seen in a regular Passover Seder, 
the carpus that we explained a little bit earlier. <clears throat> now, as we know from the Gospels, the following day, as the Passover week continued, Jesus died. And on the third day of Passover week, eyewitness accounts from his followers claim that Jesus rose from the dead. This miraculous resurrection is what has now been celebrated for thousands of years by Christians as the holiday of Easter. The Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach. In French, Easter is Pax. In Italian, it's Pasqua. In many other languages, the word for Easter is simply a transliteration of the Greek word for Easter, which is Pascha. As Christianity spread beyond Israel and into many other regions, languages, and cultures, people embraced Jesus in ways that were culturally relevant in their own contexts. As we know, when we look at art, <coughs> whoever the painter was, um, Jesus is depicted as kind of looking like or similar to the artist or the, the people that the artist is um, living amongst. And it doesn't even end there, um, where you kind of take Jesus and appropriate him to fit your vision of what he is. But after um, or for several hundred years, the connection between Passover and the observance of Jesus's death and resurrection at the time of Passover were indeed linked by date and by language. So, if the early followers of Jesus were Jewish people who observed Passover while simultaneously commemorating the resurrection, how and why did Passover and Easter come to be so separated? Until the fourth century, Easter's dating was based on the Jewish calendar and date of Passover. But in the year 325 AD, at the Council of, or um, CE, if you, if you will, at the Council of Nicaea, church leaders decided to create a way to date Easter that would be independent of Jewish influence. Sadly, after this decision was made, and it, it's sad for many reasons, but especially this, many early church leaders increased in their contempt for the Jewish people. To this day, many horrific acts of anti-Semitism are perpetrated against the Jews in the days leading up to Easter by people claiming to be Christians who wish to punish Jews for, in quote, killing Christ. And in doing so, they forget the paramount reason for Jesus's death, that he gave his life willingly so that we may all live again something we could not do without his redemptive power. They also ignore the fact that it was political and religious leaders, and not even all of them, that condemned him to death. Finally, the Jews as a people were in servitude to Rome. 
they really had no say in their own free will. So when a crowd was crying, crucify him, they may have done so out of fear of retaliation because the Sanhedrin were watching them very carefully. So they thought if they, you know, spoke up in, you know, in his defense that they might suffer Roman crucifixion uh, themselves or otherwise thrown into prison or stoned. Or maybe they were even paid off. You know, maybe they were poor and, you know, the council smiled upon them, so-called, and gave them money. Who knows? But um, I think that was an act of coercion because they were so happy to see him coming, you know, coming into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey um, and really thought that he was going to be a messiah. But at the same time, a lot of them thought he was going to be a messiah like David, like he's going to be a militaristic Messiah and he was going to bring down Rome and when he didn't maybe there were some who turned on him but you can't say one race of people killed him that's absolutely not what happened even Peter the head apostle denied three times even knowing Jesus the night of his arrest this was all abject fear and coercion in Sephardic Jewish uh, tradition the Ephikomen the fragment of matzah explained earlier when we described the Seder with the um, parsley and the salt water and shaking out the parsley so that it looks like tears. That was understood as representing the Passover lamb. Before eating the Yafiko men, <clears throat> all participants are required to say, I quote, in remembrance of the lamb. This is strikingly similar to what Jesus said when he held up a piece of unleavened matzah the night before his death and said, <clears throat> this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he was absolutely saying that he himself was the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. This not only explains why lamb is a traditional menu item at Easter, but also explains why using bread to remember him this way is still performed by followers of Jesus across the globe in what is typically now known in Christianity as communion or as a sacrament service. Many church liturgies today even reference Passover directly each time this celebration is observed. Rabbis teach that Passover wine should be red to remind us of the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb. Just before drinking the third of four cups of wine, also known as the cup of redemption, Jesus said, and I quote, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Close quote. When Jesus identified himself with the sacrificial Passover lamb, it's clear that he was using well-known Jewish traditional liturgy and applying it to himself. And the people around him would have recognized that. These same words of Jesus are regularly recited in the Christian church during communion. In both ceremonies, red wine is used to represent blood that redeems 
humanity. For Jewish people, the liberation from slavery in Egypt is one of the most central narratives of the Bible, or the Torah. At every Seder, Passover symbology helps to retell the story of God's victory over the gods of the Egyptians, achieving freedom for Israel by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. The New Testament explores a different type of slavery, a slavery to the curse of sin and death that humankind suffers generation after generation. And I'm not even talking about sin as an event like, oh, I um, dishonored my mother. I am talking about the perpetual state of sin that a human being finds themselves in. We, we're, we're, um, we're completely susceptible to corruption in every way. And Jesus's resurrection provides a victory over this curse, the promise of a future resurrection for mortals, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in every part of the soul. And the hope of freedom and renewal in this lifetime and also in the eternities to come. An authentic Christian is someone who embraces Jesus as the personal Messiah, their redeemer from spiritual slavery. So in some ways, Christians and Jews are looking toward the same thing, this miracle personified coming to save their lives. It is certainly no coincidence that throughout history, the God of Israel has often chosen to perform his most powerful redemptive acts during Passover in the spring, which on the biblical calendar occurs midway through the first month of the year. It was during this season of rebirth and revitalization, as the days begin to grow longer and the darkness and the cold begin to thaw, that the Lord brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. And it was also at this precise time that Christ was crucified as the ultimate Passover lamb. There is even evidence that Jesus was actually born at Passover and not on December 25th. Um, December 25th being a date which the Roman church appropriated from pagan rituals. So consider these clues in the scriptures and um, from other ancient Hebrew texts. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, or the Roman emperor, that all the world should be registered. Now, this register or census took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone returned to the cities of their birth to be registered. Now, Joseph, Joseph of Nazareth, he left from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth and returned to Judea, his ancestral land, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered. Now, Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, was also a direct descendant of David and was from Jerusalem. Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, was only about five miles south of Jerusalem. On a nice day, it's a nice walk. 
Now stay with me. The census was not only the numbering or registration of people, it was generally done for the purpose of taxation or military recruitment. The census was taken at a convenient time when people were gathered to their rightful homes, including Jews who were traveling abroad. That time occurred at Passover as people naturally returned and were ob obligated to travel home to observe this important holiday with their families. The number of those who took part in Jerusalem's Passover festival was enormous. Women as well as men were eligible for participation. As additional proof that a census took place in ancient Israel, the ancient Hebrew historian Josephus recorded a census that was taken at the Passover in the year 65. Also in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that Zechariah is on temple duties when Jesus is born. And when do men go and return to the temple to perform ritual? At Passover. We also read that shepherds were watching over their flocks in the fields on the night of Jesus' birth, something that they would have done in the spring, not in the cold of winter when such animals were sheltered. So, I submit that Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection all seem to have taken place in the spring, specifically on Passover. Okay, now we've described Passover, we've described Easter and their relationship to each other, but we still have not completed the story. While Passover can be a foreshadowing of Easter, when the blood of the lamb sheds to save the world so that the world may live again, it's more than that. Passover is also a foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah, ushering in the end of the mortal and fallen world and the beginning of a new and glorious era. In Luke, we read, we, uh, yeah, read. <laughs> we read that before eating his final Passover meal with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said, I quote, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's that last part of the sentence I want to focus on. I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As vital as Jesus' sacrifice as the Passover lamb most certainly was, notice that Jesus does not say in this passage that Passover would be fulfilled the next day at the time of his crucifixion or even on the Sunday when he rose again. Instead, he says that Passover will only be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That is to say, in an era still to come when he returns to earth in glory, bringing the kingdom of God down to earth from the kingdom of heaven. Woo! He had a lot to say, didn't he? <clears throat> According to Jesus, 
This is the time when he will once again eat the Passover meal with us, humanity. And this is what he was looking forward to on the night before his death, which made it all, um, you know, um, for him, it made all of the suffering worth it to him. Jesus understood that Passover is a prophetic picture of what God will do for his people and for Israel when he returns. Jesus' second coming will be a replay of the original Passover story from the book of Exodus, with us being freed from our slavery, the slavery of sin and the slavery of death. The previous redemption mirrors the much bigger future redemption. In the book of Matthew, it says, after he had entered Jerusalem only days before Passover, Jesus said to the following, said the following to a group of his Jewish brothers and sisters, for I say unto you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is quoting the portion of Psalms that reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the first century, Psalm 118 was a central part of the Jewish Passover liturgy. And in traditional Judaism, it still is today. This Psalm makes up part of what is known as the Egyptian Hallel in Judaism. And it was recited in the temple as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. And it was, is, also recited at the end of the Jewish Seder meal. By reciting Psalm 118 at the end of the Passover meal, the Jewish people were and still are actually blessing the Messiah at this time and proclaiming their faith and anticipation in the future messianic deliverance. When Jesus quoted this passage to the Jews in Jerusalem on the eve of Passover, no less, they would have immediately recognized that he was referencing the Passover liturgy and applying it to himself. In essence, Jesus was saying, until you recognize that I am the one the Passover liturgy looks forward to, you will not experience the Passover deliverance you are longing for. Interestingly, by making a connection between his future second coming and this particular psalm, Jesus was also implicitly connecting his return to Passover. Just as he would do later um, at his last Seder, as we saw in the Gospel of Luke. This is another clear indication that Jesus himself understood Passover to be an anticipatory celebration that looks forward to the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom. The crowds present at Jesus's return to Israel, truly um, on the, you know, the week before he died, truly thought that he was going to vanquish the Romans and set up a kingdom of God on Passover just as they had anticipated in their Passover celebrations year after year when they pray to go to Jerusalem and celebrate it with the Messiah. 
Many scholars and Bible teachers have been quick to point out how ultimately Jesus did not meet the expectations of these people um, who were looking for a military king like David. He opted instead to go to the cross in extreme humility and establish a spiritual kingdom rather than a political kingdom centered Sent, <coughs> excuse me, I got a cough. <coughs> Rather than a political kingdom centered in Israel. The fundamental purpose of Passover is to look back in order to look forward. We meditate on God's miraculous works in the past before this allows us to more fully understand and appreciate what he will do for us in the future when the Passover king returns to establish his kingdom. We all must endure a certain measure of suffering in this life, but Passover reminds us that God is our deliverer, our miracle worker, our liberator, and our ultimate hope for a brighter future. Even as the earth escapes the shackles of darkness and dormancy every spring, we uh, mortal creatures will escape the corruption of this world in an age to come when the Messiah returns to redeem. This is what Passover is about, and this is why Jesus said that one day it will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when does this second coming occur? In the scriptures it says no man knows the hour or the day, but the ancient Hebrew month of Nisan approximates our present day month of April. And April 1st happened to be New Year's Day for the reign of kings. Sometime after that, an unblemished firstborn lamb was selected and then slaughtered. And then a great feast followed that where all were welcome. So I personally would not be surprised if the second coming not only happened in the springtime, but happened at Passover. Jesus even talked about the fig, fig tree as the sign of the times near um, the coming of the Messiah. He said, he, uh, he said, when its branch is yet tender and its leaves sprouting out, you know that summer is near, and spring kind of heralds in summer, thus you also Whenever you may be perceiving all these things, know that he is near, even at the doors. There must be some reason that Jesus makes reference to an unripe fig tree and makes its springtime growth into a parable concerning his return to earth. In summary, Jesus understood that Passover is a prophetic picture of what God means to do for us when the Messiah returns. Jesus' second coming will be a replay of the original Passover story from the book of Exodus and also from his own mortal birth, life, and death. This final return, though, will see the angel of death pass over all of us forever as we are sealed into immortality through the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. 
It is now bedtime stories from the Acoustic Bookshelf Time, and I am going to read a poem called Red Moon by Diane C. Hundermark. When the moon is red and the sky is gray, then, my friend, it is time to pray. When the sun is white and the sky is red, it is time for us to let ourselves be led by the one who carries the sun. When the world turns red and it drips of blood, then it is time for the spirit of peace to come. It will cleanse the earth and restore it to its once brilliant and natural hue. It will call to the powers and all that lives, uniting them together in the now holy lands. The spirit is love, and I am you. Together we shall build the world anew. Until next week, arrivederci.